good to have the whole gang together. Aren't y'all just so grateful for our talented musicians and song leaders? Amen. Thank you. You know, as we open the book of Revelation, uh, it, this has been a fun journey through the New Testament together with you this year. It's kind of, uh, you, you think, where did the year go? How did we get here so quick? Uh, and then when we get to Revelation as a pastor, you're like, oh goodness, now what am I going to have to do with this book that we've been avoiding this whole year? And I'm, actually, why do I have my cell phone? We're cutting this off. And so if it goes off and I lost my phone, it's under the pulpit. But Revelation is an interesting book. Raise your hand if you just wake up every morning ready to dig into it. <laughs> I don't see any hands, so that tells me I'm not having to worry too much. Uh, but this book, and, and let me read verse 3 of the first chapter. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is an important letter for the church. It is interesting as we, we dig into this book, it's different than the rest of Scripture. It's not like the Gospels. It's not like the letters of Paul, but it kind of is on both the fronts. Jesus is the one who is revealing this prophecy to John. And so as we open this, we have to, what is it exactly? Has Hollywood messed it up for you? This apocalypse. Apocalypsis. What's apocalypse? It's kind of the end of things. And so it's got different meanings to different people. Have you ever heard of a zombie apocalypse? Raise your hand if you watch a zombie apocalypse movies. Oh, I think some of you are lying because I know I'm not the only one. Yeah, you got a big hand up. But I mean, when you look at uncertain times, apocalypse is this almost entertaining idea. When everything is going well, world peace and all this, you can look at Hollywood and see the kind of mood of the people. There will be more fanciful movies and love movies and all this kind of stuff, but when things are uncertain, these movies about the end of the world, and they're all different kind of genres, and it's usually some father has to now cross the country to get a, a daughter, which I don't want to have to do that, so my daughters aren't moving across the country from me because we're not going to... Well, that doesn't work, does it? Uh, anyways, my parents are down here. We moved across Texas from them. That's, much, that's pretty much the country, right? <laughs> but when, when we look at this, we see that there is something about uncertainty that wants us to have certainty in it. And sometimes it's how we think about how the end of things will be. And so when we look at this letter of Revelation, it is a letter it was written to these seven churches that we will talk about today. It was communication. It was uh, inspired word for actual people. This isn't something that is just in the distant future. This was something written for a time. A time back when John received these words and put them, wrote them down for a particular people. And so we have to keep that in mind. It's not just about a distant future. It could be today, could be tomorrow, could be several generations from now, but Revelations is one that was written to a group, just like Paul wrote to a group. It was written to us. 
It was written to those who call on the name of Jesus so that we may have peace and we may have hope. Yes, I said that about this letter, about this apocalypse, about the writings of the end times. It was written, written so that we may find peace and hope in life. But it was written in a way that it, we were removed from, quite honestly. And many in the church today do not have the foundation just to sit down and read this letter and understand it. And, and what I mean by that is it was written, riff written, it was written using the Old Testament prophecies. So if you're not as familiar with Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, um, Daniel, for instance, you don't necessarily have the tools to understand it. And so when you look at these symbolisms of these, these dragons and these monsters and how this is all coming together in the fire and all this, it is rooted, rooted, I need to change my terminology, it was rooted in the Old Testament. It was rooted in a vocabulary that they would understand. Some think it as a, as a code. But it was written to a people, to a leadership, that should understand the meaning of these words because it's not foreign to them. It is not as removed from them as you would think. It was written in a way that they would understand it. And as blessed as those who take the time to study it and read it. You know, a month or two ago, we went through this on our Wednesday night Bible study. This whole letter. We took it day by day, week by week. And we, we, we looked at it. And if you went through that study with me, you know that you're not going to get a few things that you may want. I'm not going to give you a timeline of events. I'm not going to tell you how long you have, what you have to do. But we're going to try to apply this letter to today, to how we live today. How does this book affect how I live my daily life? Because that's why we come together. We come to worship Jesus Christ who set us free. And we come to learn how we are to be his representatives, his ambassadors, his children on earth in the here and now. And this letter has a lot to tell us. It has a lot to warn us. It has a lot to show us. And it paints a picture that, no, is not pretty. But I think the problem is, as Americans, as those who have means and resources, we don't look at life the way other people do. Because in the world's eyes, we are very powerful people. We send our police forces around the world. If a, a war breaks out, they're expected for the United States to intervene. We've gotten ourselves into a war that we probably shouldn't have. But from a global standpoint, if our economy fails, guess what else? All the other economies of the world will follow. We are powerful people in this country. Whether you feel it or not, it is the truth. And that truth manipulates how we see the world. When John wrote these letters, when it was revealed to him the times that were taking place, there were some churches like us today. But there were other churches that he wrote to that were oppressed, that were victimized because of their beliefs, that were put down because of what they did. And they saw life very differently. If you come from the angle of being the oppressed, the victim, 
and you're looking for justice because you were inflicted real pain and damage. You had properties removed. You had friends, lives taken from you because of what you believed. When you see these words and you see the things that will to take place, they're not nearly as disturbing because they are what justice looks like. It is God's justice inflicted on the world. But we won't get into all that today. It'll come. Today we are talking about those churches, those that John saw, that John saw this image of Jesus, bright as the sun, holding his lampstand with, with the seven stars and all that. We are talking about these represent churches. And it's interesting, as you read through this letter, you see the image of the heavens mirroring what is on earth. Did you ever think of it that way? When God spoke to Moses and told them to build the tabernacle so that they could travel around and that God's presence could be, he gave him clear instructions on how to set it up. When you start reading these images of what heaven looks like, what John's seeing, you can see how heaven is a mirror of the things that God has told them on earth. Because we are not living a life of insignificance. We are living in the mirror of what is to come. It's just corrupted right now with sin and pain and death. It is corrupted since sin first entered this world. But there are better things that are coming. And it is going to take a complete cleansing of what we see today in order for heaven to meet earth for real. And today is a great day to start because we will share the elements of the bread and wine together. It is the symbols of what we long for. It is the symbols of Christ returning to earth and to collect his bride, to collect us so that we may be spared the trials of this life from aging to sicknesses to the pain of addictions and mental illness. All these things that so easily corrupt our fragile human bodies. We long for that to take place. But guess what? God is a holy God. Sinners and holiness cannot mix. It's incompatible as oil and water. You can shake that bottle as hard as you want to, and it looks like it's coming together, but just give it a minute. It separates itself out. Because a holy can't mix with the, with the sinner, sinful nature that we are. And so we have a Christ who gave his life to purify our lives so that when the time comes that we will be holy as he is holy because he cleansed us of all of our impurity. But the earth that we look at is full of impurity. Trees fall in the woods and they become rot. Cycle of life, you may say. Oh, it's for the next generation. But why should it be that way? In eternity, trees won't fall and have rot. It'll be the Garden of Eden. You won't have to labor for your food. It'll be just there to pick. You'll have tasks to do, work to do. But it won't be what we think of as work today. It'll bring you enjoyment and peace because you do it for the Lord in person. And so we look at the time to come. And there will be a time of cleansing for all that to take place. And that's really what this letter is about. It is how heaven will come down and will reign on this earth and everything will be as it should have been 
in the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden. But today we look at the seven churches. We look at the church in Ephesus. Letters were written to Ephesus. Paul is in Ephesus. Great missionaries came through Ephesus. They were doctrinally driven. They knew what they should have known. They had it down. They studied. They had the doctors of the church, all this kind of stuff. They were pure when it came to knowledge. Sometimes we come to church thinking we need to learn more about Jesus, about theology, about spirituality. And if we know enough, then we will be right. And sometimes we have disagreements with other people. Look at Baptist history if you want to see a disagreement. We're full of them. We're not even the same Baptists as those across the street from us. There's differences. And sometimes we will find those differences as being unorthodox or even heretical. That if they don't agree with me 100%, they are probably not even really Christian. You met people like that? You may have and not even known it. She has. <laughs> they were pure, but they lost something. They put doctrinal purity over their love for God. They were driven by being right and proud and correct. And they missed the love that they once had. God calls them to account. Jesus calls them to account and says, repent and come back to your first love. It is important to have the knowledge of the kingdom. But without love, we are missing the point. Because one thing you will notice as we look at these seven churches today, that there is a balance in life. Because we are still sinful creatures that are trying day after day to grow it more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ. But there is a balance of life. You've got to have the right doctrine. You've got to have the right beliefs. But you also have to have that fervor, that love for the gospel that will push you to leave your comfortable homes and to travel around the world and live in a culture that is so, so different. And as a West Texan, you ought to understand that. But there's many West Texas boys who leave home only to miss home and come back. Y'all know them, and you're glad when they do. There's something about this area that just draws you here. The culture, the people, there's something that is to be missed when you leave. But it draws you back. And if you repent of your ways and you find that first love to the Ephesians, he says, I will grant you to eat from the tree of life. You will finally earn what you have been seeking. Then the church to Smyrna, spiritually rich, enduring persecution. They didn't draw the, they drew the short straw, I guess. They found a faith. They found a hope. They found a future. But their neighbors hated them for it. In times of trials, you can see the reaction in people. Some people are drawn closer to God, and some people hate God. They turn away from God. They close their hearts to what God is doing. These people in this church, when the trials came, when they would suffer, 
they drew closer to God. They gave us an image on how to live in the face of persecution. I pray the day never comes where we have to be this church, where we can still come and gather freely and worship God freely. But our culture is becoming more and more anti-Christian. Year after year, it's more popular to hate Christians. We are far removed from this situation that this church is in. If you think you're being persecuted, just wait. It can get a lot worse than it is now. And then Pergamum, they hold to the name of Christ. They, they proclaim the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior. But they're mixed. They still want to have the accolades of the culture. They mix their religion with what is appropriate for the culture. Can you think of any churches like that today where it's more important to be liked by your neighbor even if they're not a Christian than it is to stand by the name of Jesus and his teachings? They needed to meet with the Ephesians and learn where they were off. But they held fast to his name. But they let a lot of things go on in their church that weren't right. Isn't it easy to do that? Can we easily justify our life and our life choices because it is looked on as something wise in our culture. We may know that it may be a little gray area when it comes to our Christian faith, but it's just a gray area, you know. Who to say I'm wrong? I see what they do. You can start pointing out how hypocritical they are. Look, you know, they may really know the Bible, but they don't have any love like the, you know, those Ephesians. And we can do that. Thyatira. They have love, they have service, they have deeds, but they lack discernment. And they tolerate heresy. Even worse here. They have the social gospel. They are bringing the good news, but they also aren't bringing the burden or the yoke of Jesus Christ. And see, what do we do when we, we appease this world? We take on a yoke that we think is easy. Well, let's look at Jesus. He calls us. He draws us. He says, put on my yoke. Put my yoke upon you. For it is easy and my burden light. And then he calls us to a much higher standard. Read through the Sermon of the Mount. He says, it's not just good enough to refrain from adultery. If you even look at another with lustful thoughts, you're just as guilty as if you committed the crime. It's not just good enough to refrain from murder, but if you hate a brother in your heart, you might as well have killed him. Jesus calls Christians to a much higher ethic than even the Ten Commandments did, because his ethic comes from the heart, because he wants to live there, and he wants us to do what it takes. What was his example? For three years, he taught, he healed, he raised those from the dead. They murdered him for it. They hung him for a cross, on the cross. But by doing so, he took the weight of our sins upon him so that we may li live. He brought redemption, and that is the yoke that he brings upon you. It is redemption. It is the one to free you from the sins of this world that so easily entangles us. It is to give us a true true life 
one that we can choose not to fall in the path of death, but to pick up the path of life and life with meaning. And Sardis, there are a few pure, a few are loyal, but they had dead works. They were going through the motions. You could go and look and you could see that, hey, they fill the pews. They seem to be uh, doctrinally okay. They seem to gather week after week and sing songs and worship. They don't do anything. They're not a church that cares for the loss of this world. They don't send their people anywhere. They don't look for where God is calling them to go. They have closed their doors, muffled their ears, quieted their heart to where God had led them. They look okay on paper. They may have filled out all their Sunday school cards. They may have all their tithes given, but they're dead inside. He tells them. And there's Philadelphia, patiently enduring, keeping God's word, not denying his name. And Laodicea, that lukewarm church, the one that Jesus himself says he will spit out. That's probably the danger that we look into because they were self-assured. They had made their own way in life. They had not found a way to depend on Jesus for their very being. They earned their money, they paid their bills, they did this, they did that. They had the best organization, they had the best programs, they did what they needed to do. It was them, I. Over and over again they call it, we did it. No, Jesus did it. He always did it. He is the gospel, he is the good news, he is why we can meet week after week. He is what gave us true freedom. It was never I, it was always him. If we quit pointing to the one that created us, that created us for a purpose, we have missed the point. But as I read through these lists, and I hope you have, I always mark the things at the end of each section. To the Ephesians, he gave the tree of life. To Smyrna, he gave the crown of life. To Pergamum, the hidden manna to Thyatira he gave him the morning star to Sardis the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never bolt his name out of the book of life to Philadelphia the one who conquers I will make him a pillar in the temple of God to Laodicea the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on the, my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, it doesn't matter the situation of the church you may find yourself in, whether it is this church for many days from now or whether you move and find another church home. There are going to be those who do it right and there are going to be those who don't. There's going to be the enemy who lurks inside our doors and it will call those to move astray. But there will be those who conquer no matter where they call home. You may look at the church and say, they're just nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. Guess what? You're right. If you're looking for a church that's perfect, don't join it. You'll screw it up. 
but you're never going to find a perfect church home. There are seasons in every church where we do things right, but sometimes when we succeed, we start turning to us and I and my, and we did this. Look at how much we grew. It was all, all our programs. And maybe even your leaders are invited to speak at conference and to tell other church how they are successful and do what they do. But if we lose sight of why, of who, we can fall victim just as each and every one of these churches. When you read Revelations, you will find that numbers are important. Seven churches, number of completeness. John wrote to these seven churches, but he wrote in a way that it is significant to us still today. And as we read this letter together, this apocalypse together, and we try to find the answers of how we are to live today, we will see how easy it is to fall astray because guess what? There is an enemy out there who wants us to fail. He wants us to be lukewarm or he wants us to be so doctrinally poor that we hate others. He wants us to hear the culture and be popular and make the decisions that the culture likes that aren't God-honoring. And if we are in the right path and we're doing everything right, he wants the culture to attack us for who we believe in and how we live. There are many methods that Satan uses even today. And for us uh, modern thinking Americans, Western culture and all that, all the enlightenment, maybe the best thing he did was convince us that he doesn't exist. But he does. He would rather you live a life of ignorance instead of knowing what God really wants out of us. Or a life of apathy. But as we read this letter together, we will see in it warnings and we will see it encouragement. But we also see that God means what he says and if we are not careful we will find God's justice pointed at us we will find our lampstand removed so when is Jesus Christ coming back I could give you 2020 reasons he'll be here next year and the year after that I might give you 2021 He could come back this afternoon. But guess what? I can guarantee you one thing for sure. It doesn't matter if Christ comes back this year or in four generations. Your days are numbered. We don't know when our last breath would be. Whether you're young, you don't know if you'll make it to adulthood. I used to work with a man. He said, I'm 55 years old. You're not promised that. The man, when I was in my early 20s, I was training. It's an interesting dynamic. But he was right. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. And so how you live today truly matters. If you live with regret, don't. You have been forgiven. If you live with the assurance that you are doing everything right, don't. Because it is Christ who lives in you. There are many things of each and every one of our lives that if we take the time and let God 
reveal them to us, we will find that we are in error, that we have made mistakes, that we are doing things wrong. But guess what? God says, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about you. I gave my life for you because I have created you for a reason, for a purpose. And it is not to sit in this room and have a pity party of how bad things are. It is to go out into this world, proclaim my name, and whether that ends in your death, so be it. You will receive a crown of life. I have made you for a reason, and I expect you to live up to it. So don't let this world tell you that you are too young, that you are too old, that you are too sick, that you are too frail, that you don't know enough about the Bible. For God has created each and every one of us. He has placed each and every one of us in his house today for a reason. But it's not to stay in these doors. It is to walk out there and be missionaries, to be proclaimers, to be evangelists, to carry his word into the streets. You never know. Maybe it'll lead you around the world into places that you would never have expected. But if he does, he created you for it. He gave you the tools that you need, and you are more ready than you think. So join with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you have given us this letter that shows how much you care for us, that will warn us when we are strayed. But Lord, we know that you will lift us up, that you will be with us, and you are ready to reward each and every one of your faithful sons and daughters that conquer this life. Because you will walk with us hand in hand as we do it. You will live in our hearts. You will live in our speech and give us the words to, to speak and say and open our eyes to see the path that you laid out in front of us because you created us for this. Teach us to live into you and not into ourselves. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Nathan?